0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com.
1: Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Um, we're returning to the second half of my conversation about regional air mobility with Kevin Antcliffe, aerospace engineer, now with X-Wing and formerly with NASA. So the next question is, you know, I, I think you know one of the places I spend a lot of time is behavioral economics and uh, cognitive science that's based upon. I, I don't know if you've ever read Thinking Fast and Slow, but I, you know, I recommend yeah. it to everybody. And, and so one of the questions that I ask there is, you know, people are irrational about money, right? They and they're irrational about value. Uh, they don't make rational economic decisions. So one of the things that occurs to me that I'm not, I'm not remembering from the report, but there is something we discussed earlier, which is the safety factor and the perceived safety factor. You talked about Cirrus and their the parachute that comes with the airplane, not for the passengers, but for the entire plane. And we talked at the beginning of this about NASA's um, aviation safety database. And we talked about what the, where the cutoff is. My understanding is this general aviation space is not in the database and so the same degree of passenger mile safety stuff has not been applied to this smaller aviation space yet and so that's statement 1 there's going to be it, it does the that study <laughs> the short haul study does that include reticence due to safety concerns or perception of safety concerns as a factor
0: that's that's a good question it's been a while since i've read it in in full I'd have to go and check.
1: Yeah, we can check that another time. Yeah, I'm just curious because you know it's a factor, right? You know, how do you? It's a it's changing a modal perception of opportunity for an entire group of consumers. Exactly. You know, let's you know, let's say we had um, let's pick a number. There, are, you know, five thousand airports, and there's ten thousand electric small planes moving passengers between that network of things, and they have. Call it four seats per plane or something like that. So that's forty thousand pass- forty thousand passengers for if they're all in the in the air, but they're taking three or four trips a day to maximize the value of the you know million dollar airplane asset. You know, so it's four hundred thousand passengers every day fl- flitting around. And then since most people don't fly every day, I, I felt like I was flying every day for a while. <laughs> but that means you've got to actually take 20 times or 100 times that number of people and convince them through a marketing effort and a bunch of processes and not falling out of the sky that this is a safe mode of transportation. They, despite it probably being safer than cars out of the box, <laughs> everybody's aware of the risk of cars. The comparison I'll make you know, how many times have you seen headlines about Tesla fires? How many yeah. times have you seen any of those articles say, and this happens 1 the time of the equivalent number of fires in internal combustion cars? <laughs> right? And, you know, oh, yeah. so we, we have this weird statistical, back to Kahneman, we have a bad idea about statistics. Humans are really bad at statistics unless they get into system two and do the math. And even then, most people hate math and system two thinking, so they never do that. They just kind of stick with cars are safe because I'm in my car every day. You know, yeah, Joe died, but Joe was an idiot. (laughs) You know, so it's kind of one of these things. So with this thing, something I'm picking at is how do you move people down the path towards that? You know, an electron, when I've spoken to Mark Henry and Joseph, they've actually got a strategy around that. You know, so they're going to do marketing to bring people into this mode of transportation and find the right early adopters and then from a marketing perspective cross the chasm to the you know uh, early majority at least and there's always going to be people who are just risk averse who you know say well i'm I i do not think anything you know walking around my neighborhood is safe everything else I don't do
0: yeah well the, the people that are risk averse definitely should avoid all automobiles because uh, you're, you're <laughs> right it's I think it's consistently top ten uh, ways to die uh, is is the automobile and people you know I, every day or not every day but pretty pretty frequently when I'm driving I I look over to the car next to me and think why do I trust this guy <laughs> you know I don't know anything about this person but uh, for some reason we're traveling together and he could very easily just swerve and hit me and knock me off the road yeah we, I take, would- we take those risks all the time.
1: I would much rather be driving surrounded by Teslas that are driving themselves under the FSD beta that is currently extant <laughs> than with humans.
0: Yeah. Because
1: yeah. as much as the people are complaining about the FSD beta kind of being weird and stuff like that, it actually pays attention in all directions all the time. Mm-hmm. But so it's just, I want to pull up yeah. that safety thing. Yeah. And, you know, and,
0: then, and then when you, yeah, that's a, a great, great point. And then when you look at that, right, you, you look at what Tesla has to process and all of the mini, like you, you look at a busy city corner, uh, you've got, you've got pedestrians, you've got stoplights, you've got other cars, you've Maybe got six
1: inches from something.
0: And, and you, you have to process all of these and all, and not everything is square. Not everything is straight. Everything is curved and weirdly oriented. And sometimes there's six way intersections. Hey, and uh, I'm inter- just going
1: to interrupt you very briefly. What I've done is I've poked a button for Kevin which I intended to poke a little later, but I'm going to let him go now. He's with X-Wing. They're doing autonomous flying. So now he's deep into why autonomous flying is much better and easier than autonomous driving. Um, well, so, well,
0: you, you beat me to my punchline then, right? So. Um, but now I,
1: I just want people to understand what button I pushed. And now <laughs> go for it because X-Wing <laughs> is doing amazing things. I love it. Kevin is now, what is your official title with Wing.
0: Yeah, so I am the, uh, I'm the product lead at X-wing or, or head of product, I guess you could say. And essentially my role is to, to own the, the business strategy behind our product and ensure product market fit by working with our customers to understand their problems and ensure that the product that we're designing and developing solves the problems that they have, uh, which uh, allows us to specify and clarify our own functional requirements. Uh, so that's really what i do day in and day out but um yeah as as uh, michael was just mentioning x-wing has already operated uh, a converted car- caravan which is about a nine passenger aircraft uh, typically used uh, in cargo feeder routes uh, which is feeder routes are kind of the smaller routes that move the cargo as quickly as we can uh, within our current cargo ecosystem but uh, so we we've already converted a caravan under an experimental certificate for research and development purposes. And we've got a, a supervising pilot on board, but essentially it, it flies itself gate to gate. Uh, it taxis out, takes off, flies, and then and lands and taxis back to its gate, uh, all without any human intervention. Uh, and essentially-
1: I encourage people to go watch the YouTube video that's publicly available for that. It's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's-, it's uh, it's been incredible. Uh, I'm really, really glad to be in this in this company. It's it's uh, it's got a very pragmatic approach, and and you you were just talking about safety, and I think that's that's that really triggered me into into going this route. But you know, we've we also have uh, commercial operations with other caravans through our Part 135 subsidiaries, and uh, have applied to the FAA for clearance to fly commercially with these um, with a ground based pilot hopefully with approval this year.
1: Yeah, so, so let's talk a bit about, so you know, part of what's going on with this is short electric air aviation is great, but if you're moving 10,000 planes, where do you get 10,000 pilots? You know, that's that's kind of the the rub here. Now, I'll reference Electron again, because I know what they're doing. They're actually, uh, because their air, their aircraft is a two-motor aircraft with two propellers, it actually allows certification of multi-engine airplanes as opposed to single-engine airplanes, which is a necessary part of the training program for pilots. And so they're working with um, training organizations in Australia and talking with them in Europe and other places to have their Electron 5, their four-passenger, one-pilot plane, be included as the primary training plane because then they're pre-certified with multi-engine planes coming out of the course very cheaply and easily because electric is so much cheaper. And that means they have a whole bunch of people, young pilots who already know how to fly their planes available to fly their routes and to do this stuff. So they've got a real strategy for this. Everybody has to have a strategy for this. The X-wing strategy is put the pilot on the ground for now. Right. And so I'm going to use the unfortunate strategy for this. This is like McLaren air force base near Vegas, where all the drone pilots fly the predators on the other side of the world. have the drone is doing most of the work in the air, but there's some guy in a shipping container or a woman in a shipping container with their their team keeping an eye on the drone and occasionally unleashing extra-jurisdictional assassinations. (laughs) The United States on that is a bit iffy ethically. However, that's... A really useful model and one of the reasons i like x-wing is because it's not military we don't have to deal with military intellectual capital you know so when i talk to people in the aerospace industry that's emerging electric aviation space that's emerging one of the risks i see is co-option by the military because they have lots of money for stupid ideas um, they need rotorcraft they need short takeoff and landing craft almost nobody else does so but then you end up with potentially intellectual capital, which is in the prescribed technologies list. And X-Wing, I think, has avoided all that by being a fully commercialized, non-military aligned, autonomous capability. And once again, they're trying to say, we don't need 10,000 pilots. Right? Now, I did trigger you and I did interrupt your discussion of why electric uh, aviation is easier to automate than driving cars. So I want you to go back to that because it's a really worthwhile discussion.
0: Yeah, well, essentially, I can I can clear it up by, uh, <clears throat> I mean, look, looking in the sky, right? I mean, you you have clouds, maybe you have uh, potentially clouds, you have potentially birds, and uh, there's there's not much else up there. Uh, you know, it's in aviation at this point, we've been flying for well over a hundred years. I, we we pretty much know what the airplane's going to do and how to operate it pretty effectively. And so it's it's just a question of, you know, taking off, landing, moving around on the ground is, you know, it's, it's essentially the self-driving car on the ground that we have to develop is a little, is probably more difficult than, than the, <laughs> the self-flying plane. But mean, know, it, overall, I'll just say
1: taxiing through an airport, there's a bunch of parked planes and the speed is like, 10 kilometers per 10 miles per hour maybe
0: yeah yeah still still much much easier than than what uh what Tesla or, or Waymo or any of the the others have to have to go through in order to and it's all to flat. figure out all of the all of the off off nominals right all the, all the off nominal cases of of things that could go wrong uh there's there's very little uh off nominals on a on a on an apron of a of an airport or in the air so yeah, this is this is actually. I mean, going going back kind of to your pilot shortage question, I think this is this is the main reason why I joined X-Wing is because I think that initial regional mobility operations can can grow and scale sufficiently for a business model uh, with you know with current with with everything that's currently in place, but if it grows to scale, where everyone across the nation and the world has an opportunity to take an aircraft from their local airport, then it will have to be autonomous, remotely monitored or operated. And the approach that X-Wing has taken to bringing the pilot out of the cockpit and into kind of an operations center, as you mentioned, will provide such an, such an excellent opportunity to safely scale operations. And And really significantly decrease cost. When you look at a small airplane, you've got to look at what percentage of that small airplane has a has a pilot. You know, you're you're paying the pilot and you're not getting revenue from the pilot, right? So if you're if you're operating a small airplane, being able to take the pilot off of the plane actually allows you a significant amount of additional payload, additional paying payload. That, uh, that provides that, that new opportunity, both on the, the cargo side, which is where we are where we were focused on as a company, and you know, down the road for any potential passenger operations.
1: And you also don't have to pay air crew for hoteling in remote locations. And you also, the, the other big thing that I see is that because you have a shift change, the shift change doesn't mean you have to stop the plane. You know, right now pilots have specific strict limits on how much they can fly every month and, and be safe. In the future, with a crew that does a shift change in the operation center, you know, that's that's another thing. Then the third thing I'd see is, you know, I talked to oh Grant Canary, great name for this. He's a, a fly guy. He um right now his company drone seed runs uh eight-foot diameter hexacopters. They weigh 160 pounds each carrying, I think it's 160 pounds, carrying 60 pounds of uh, special pucks, a moss substrate with seeds in them for trees. Um, he flies a, a, a swarm of these five at a time, over tens of acres to do precision dropping of seedlings in burnt out areas in North America. And he's got approval, he's the first person to be approved to fly um, heavy drones out of line of sight a drone swarm with only of t- uh, five drones with only two operators. Right. And so that's kind of the pathway for X-Wing as well is the point where an operator, an operating team, monitors five, ten aircraft with two primary pilots to take over and intervene in the
0: case of problems. So yeah, and that's that's a critical you, you mentioned a lot of very, very good points there. Because I mean going back to uh, the the very light jet the early 2000s where a lot of those those light jets were starting air taxi operations a lot of the issues from an economic standpoint were those dead legs right you you had to and these dead legs are essentially flights with no revenue on board right you, you're not you're not you're just moving the pilot you're not getting any money for it right you you just have to move the pilot either to where the demand signal is coming from or back to his home base so that he can he can go to sleep there at night and that's from that perspective it really opens up the operational capability of these aircraft to follow demand wherever it may be regardless of you know cuz there's always kind of this home station especially in a lot of our cargo feeder operations we're we're based in a airport And then we go out to other airports, but we always end up coming back to that same airport. But what if, you know, instead of always having to come back so that the pilots can come back home, what if it can, it can simply follow demand where it may be and significantly reduce how many flights you're flying with no revenue passengers on board. And and I think that's, you know, passengers or cargo on board. And I think that's a, a critical opportunity for for regional mobility moving forward and I think as you mentioned there's not a significant amount of time during flight and there's there's so much data on this and how many commercial flights uh, how active the pilots are right 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever <laughs> they're they're active when they're they're landing and taking off but not much else and you know that's that's a, that's a significant amount of time that you're you're paying for and that is not critical for a person to be at, at the controls the entire time. So that, that provides a huge opportunity for, as you mentioned, two to five or, or one to three or those kind of one to many kind of operations.
1: Yeah, the, the other thing that's interesting about this, of course, is it's going to take a while, but a fully autonomous aviation system requires fully autonomous digital air traffic control as well. So, you know, I know that you spend a lot of time looking at poking at the edges of that. I think it's further away than autonomous flying. Um, so t- talk to us about that requirement, because that I, I see regional air mobility, the, thing, the part that has a business case, from my perspective, includes electric, fixed wing, conventional takeoff and landing planes, all those airports we've talked about, um, and emerging autonomous planes and emerging digital air traffic control for it to scale. So talk about the digital air traffic control.
0: Yeah, digital air traffic control could be could be the, a huge enabling factor. What, what we're doing today is a, it works and it can scale to a, a good amount until but you know, so I guess I should explain what we're doing today. Essentially, we have a, an operator on the ground that is talking to air traffic control. As and air traffic control doesn't know that it's talking to an operator on the ground, <laughs> air traffic control thinks it's talking to the pilot in the aircraft. But is that they're actually talking to the person sitting in a booth? And, and just so, nerd
1: question: Technically, does that mean there's a radio in the airplane that then is transmitting that to the operation center? I was thinking, hey, wait, how do you? Okay, so it is actually that link from the airplane back to the operation center. Cool. Right. Okay.
0: Yep. And so, essentially, you have that person on, in the gra- on the ground, in the ground station, talking to ATC, getting commands and, and instructions from ATC, and essentially putting waypoints for the aircraft to follow based on what ATC is saying, right? So, take this taxi, take this runway, and, and so we, you know, put little dots and say, okay, <laughs> airplane, follow these dots, and, and it, at this it,
1: elevation it's a three dimensional correct dra- route map
0: correct and so you you track okay this is this is our flight map this is the route that atc wants us to follow we track this route and the aircraft follows that route and and that that's it right it's it's that communication with atc to understand hey this is how they want us to fly this aircraft and then just simply charting the course and allowing the aircraft to go Run that course.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of the, the web, right? Regional air mobility will eventually will have airplanes without pilots, with an operation center that's just there in case something goes wrong. But the computers on the airplane will be talking digitally to the air traffic control computers, just as they will with major jets and everything like that. And the, you know, pilots in major jets will probably still persist for a variety of reasons, but they'll be overseers beginning to end, and they won't be. You know, speaking garbled English, uh, air traffic control English. I I always love listening to Korean air traffic control discussions because, uh, as I understand it, globally, air traffic control is English, which is something that I think the Americans and probably the American military foisted upon the world at some point during the history of aviation. And everybody's kind of okay. But (laughs) in the future, it'll be computers talking to computers with a lot lower opportunities for confusion. And so that is out there. But right now in the next five years, we're going to see multiple aviation startups that are pure electric, fixed wing, that are actually going to have, you know, commercial operations in play. The two I'm most familiar with are Heart and Electron, but I've spoken to many others. And every organization I've spoken to, a key thing they say is, yeah, we're censoring up our plane. We're partnering with this autonomous organization. And, you know, the ones that say, oh yeah, with this this military supplier has got autonomy. I say, there's a risk there. Here's the risk you should be aware of. And so, you know, I like X-Wing because I keep saying this, I've had this conversation like five times with different, you know, new vendors. I like X-Wing because they don't have the risk of the military stuff. All right. That's, it's a a negative downside that is poorly understood as a strategic risk, uh, I think. And so, you know, mainly because so many people in aerospace or military X-Air Force, all those types of things, they don't, perceive it the way I see it as a Canadian kind of standing back looking globally. Anyway, so electric airplanes, fixed wings, four to 19 passengers with pilots viable this decade. I would posit that we'll probably see, I I think your projections are going to be interesting. I think approvals for a cargo plane actually flying flying autonomously under the X-wing model And actually delivering cargo will probably occur within five years. But after that, there's going to be a whole bunch of information gathering by the FAA and EASA before specific routes start being over urban areas or over schools or stuff like that, because they have to make sure that it's good. And I'm positing that, you know, it's going to be that emergence of the digital air traffic control that makes it really viable. But meantime, we can get up to 1,000, 2,000 planes with the existing pilot base quite easily. So there's a lot of money and work to do this decade because all three of those things have to emerge together. We actually have to have planes that are certified, drivetrains that are certified, autonomous systems that are certified, blending them together. And everybody's kind of working towards this. But the good news is there's a lot of money to be made flying electric airplanes in the next five years anyway. So and it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And safer and safer and safer, which is really nice.
0: Yeah, that's that's something that was critical in our our paper is that not not any one of these technologies or or capabilities that are being rolled out has to has to all happen together. You know, there's there's not five miracles that all have to happen at once for this to really make sense. It's it's a you know all of these can happen. Uh, you know, if if we're able to certify an electric plane, we're, we're significantly reducing costs. We're significantly reducing maintenance. If we're able to certify an autonomous aircraft, we're significantly reducing costs. We're significantly reducing or increasing safety, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities at each step and it's not, all of these don't have to come together to make a a solid business model. There's this, there's a solid business model now, right? There was, uh, one of the, the collaborators or contributors on the white paper was uh, float shuttle, which was an organization that was flying between all of the Los Angeles airports and saying, okay, we're just, we're going to charge a subscription fee and we're going to fly this. And, you know, it was, it was decently priced. I think it was something like 60 bucks a flight or something, something pretty reasonable and you know that and as we bring in all of these new technologies and all of this continues to emerge it's just going to drive the cost down more and more so that more people can use their local airport as it was intended to be used for that that transportation to to wherever you want and
1: virtuous transport transportation it's not emitting and I, I, let's poke at this one because this is really interesting emergent stuff. I've had conversations with Bill Nussie of Freeing Energy and uh, the Electron Gang about um, Orlingen, the airport they're based out of in the Netherlands. There's a big trend and you talk about it in the regional air mobility report and you talked about it with Vail, which is, hey, airports are a really great place to put a bunch of solar behind the meter and a bunch of people are doing that. So we'll talk a bit about that.
0: Yeah, we essentially say that, uh, that airports can become clean energy hubs, right? So there's there was some, some report that uh, uh, I'd have to pull it up, but I, I think it's referenced in, in the RAM report that uh, essentially there's like 140 plus airports across the, the U.S. that have already begun to integrate renewable energy projects on their, their land. And you know, you, you look at the amount of land that an airport takes up, and there's a significant opportunity to put, uh, especially solar solar cells, and Indianapolis Airport has the largest one in the U.S., 183 acres, and that produces 36.1 million kilowatt hours per year, and uh, that's like 3,600 homes. And then Chattanooga Airport, I, w- I was mentioning the VAIL program, they got a ton of money, a ton of grants. I think the majority of their solar farm was funded by these airport improvement program funds and um, they are now fully 100% renewable and so this is a kind of opportunity where we're bringing in electric aircraft we're providing a new opportunity to to increase the utilization of this electric energy and let's let's do so renewably and and have a you know also look at it as sort of like a microgrid right We've got 5,000 airports, strategically placed near large population cores, right? Like let's put, let's make these clean energy hubs. Let's make these renewable, you know, microgrids where, you know, we can have some more, we're we're not as reliant on strong centralized energy sources, but more on a distributed network of potential energy options uh, out of these, based out of these airports that are also providing uh, transportation.
1: Yeah, and there's a really interesting regulatory question there in my mind, which I haven't had answered yet, which is, can they sell the electricity to commercial aircraft that are flying in an electric aircraft flying out without being a utility? And how do they price that? And what's the model around that? But for everybody who follows me, who's a storage weenie as I am, this is a huge behind the meter storage opportunity like when I talked to Convergent Energy and Power to Mariko uh, McDonough Meyer, their chief strategist, we didn't talk about this because I wasn't aware of it, but they've got projects in 40 uh, 40 US states and in a Canadian province. I talked to uh, Mark Wilson of Intelligent Land Investments in Scotland. He's got a gigawatt of pipelines and a 20 to 50 megawatt capacity of lithium ion, as well as three amazing pumped hydro facilities, including one on in Loch Ness, which is really cool. But you get this really op- interesting intersectional opportunity. Airports are well serviced by roads, as well as providing a, a landing strip. You can imagine a Tesla mega charger for trucks being fed by electricity from this massive land space. Now, part of my background is I, I used to paraglide. I paraglided the Southern Cliffs of Valley, which was a peak life experience, not to be repeated because I'm passed I'm into a different phase of my life now. But that meant that I spent a lot of time. Looking at aviation requirements around airports, especially because one of my training hills in Toronto is about a mile from Pearson International Airport. <laughs> you know, and so you kind of you can't fly up from there. You just yeah. end up in the raw. You just end up in restricted airspace. You can kind of <laughs> do ground handling and do little sled rides and stuff. But the big point there is, you can't actually with conventional takeoff and landing have anything preventing airplanes from coming in from most angles for a long way. It has to be flat without stuff sticking up, which means if it's flat for lots of area around the air runway, oh, gee, let's put in some solar panels, which are close to the ground and don't cause problems if airplanes run into them. It's not like we're putting up, oh, let's just put up thermonuclear reactor, or nuclear reactors, or let's put up propane heaters. And it's like, let's run an airplane into a bunch of propane tanks. Yeah, no, this is... <laughs> This is much safer. And so you really see this intersectional opportunity for airports now. And you see this intersectional opportunity for ground transportation hub for charging. And also those trucks are going to come there because as we activate cargo and passengers, there's going to be a lot more electric vehicles coming to the airports as well. And so you really start seeing the transformation models shifting and a really virtuous opportunity there. And so I'm really interested to explore that. I'm, I put uh, Bill Nussly of Freeing Energy because he's into local and distributed energy. As I said, sometimes I, I have trouble paying attention below the level of countries because I'm you know nerdy at a different scale. But he's very focused on microgrids and local energy, which is, can be very big these days. Like the Tesla Gigafactory in Texas is now a solar utility.
0: Hmm.
1: They actually sell electricity to Texans.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I'm really I'm glad you mentioned that because I I think there was. I think I was talking to uh Corey Combs of, of Amp Air once, and he was talking about uh, yeah, there's an there's an opportunity in we were just going back and forth on this clean energy I mean, He was uh he was a contributor on the Ram White paper and we were discussing this. And essentially he had the he had the thought of, you know, I, I believe it was California is moving all over to electric buses, right? And mm-hmm. it's you know, you know what an airport doesn't have at night, like nobody there, right? (laughs) Nobody's flying at night typically. So like, let's park our electric buses at the airport that's generating all of this renewable energy, have another, you know, just create this hub of this is where electric, the industry, the electric industry is growing, right? This is, this is the hub. And we've got all of this extra land uh, that's, that has to be, saved for the airport, but we can also use for solar panels and provide that back to that community. And it, it just seems like a, a really uh really useful thought and opportunity for for communities to engage and provide this capability to that uh yeah to that to that airport, to that transportation system and to that community.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be really interesting to see how fast California manages to get its buses to electric because it has a hundred thousand of them on the roads. And fl- uh, New Flyer, the, uh, prim- the major bus manufacturer in North America, uh, it's peaked at sixty five hundred buses per year delivered. Yeah. So one state, the full full maximum production, if New Flyer actually went fully electric immediately, uh, this It'll is why I say, this no is doubt. why I say that. In, this, in the case of buses and trucks, the United States is just going to have to accept that they're going to be buying a lot of stuff from China because China has 500,000 electric buses on the roads of its cities already. Yeah. So the United States hasn't hit a 1,000 yet. New Flyer hasn't delivered more than a dozen, I think. So Proterra is going to be in a nice position because I think it's a U.S. organization. So a couple more things, and then we'll, we'll close. So we've talked about the barriers, right? We've talked about air traffic control. We've talked about labor. We've talked about safety. So there are some inhibitors to this space that have to be overcome. As I said, you know, the, the um, entrepreneurs in this space have are aware of this and they're learning to figure out how to deal with it. You guys are doing it with the operations center and management of the aircraft in a different way, and you're moving through that process. Electron is doing that with the, you know, young pilots who are already pre-certified in their airplanes before they move on to the major carriers, stuff like that. And, you know, they're aware of the safety thing as well. But, you know, that's X-Wing and Electron. Who else do you think gets it? I mean, I've published a lot on the organizations that don't get it, like Joby and companies like that, and individuals who I won't name that, you know, but who, from your perspective, actually gets the regional air mobility thing and is moving effectively down that path besides X-Wing and Electron?
0: Yeah, it's uh, that's a good question. I, I, mean, I think you can you can take a look at all of the uh, all of the people on the RAM white paper, right? There was I mentioned Amp Air. uh they yep. were they were on there. Uh, they're they're working on hybrid electric aircraft. I, I think, um, yeah, every every single person on that that contributed to that paper was incredibly passionate and and really understood what we were trying trying to get after, and that was that was really really incredible there was there was this company x-wing that was that was on that paper as well that <laughs> really stuck out to me when i was at nasa but, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, gee, i was, wonder uh,
1: why <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they seem to get it but obviously uh, there's yeah. magnix
1: because magnix is like
0: yeah, Mag- magni x is another one of them is that how you pro- uh, I,
1: I'm, I'm mispronouncing it magni x
0: i believe it's magni x okay That's, yeah but uh yeah there's there's uh a good amount of companies and it's you know it's growing every day right electron wasn't around uh, when i well haven't been around for a while hard Aerospace is a a new entrant as well I, I think it i think you'll start to see a lot of a lot of movement in regional mobility this year i, I think it's it's starting uh, i think the pr- pragmatic approach is is starting to catch on yeah
1: you know, certainly when i talk to investors right now everybody got seduced by the jetsons Um, And I have my hypothesis about the psychology of rich people who think everybody flies in helicopters and don't realize that that's just not going to be viable. The um, From an energy density, because just the urban air mobility really depends upon battery energy density. We don't have certifying tilt wing electric vertical takeoff and landing things, um, which has never been done. You know, there's one operational one in the world, the Osprey, and it's killed 83 people so far, and it depends upon digital air traffic control, and it depends upon, you know, soccer, suburban soccer moms looking up and seeing an electric VTOL flying overhead with its rotors spinning over their school and not freaking out and saying, ban these things. I, UAM is a long, long way away. So anybody who's depending upon, you know, on their invest, in retirement investment on the urban air mobility space. I'd recommend cut your losses today because that's twenty years away. But regional air mobility, what I always tell investors is, we're starting now. This is a viable business space today. It does take forty percent of the costs out because electricity is cheap, and the the physics of a high uh, torque electric motor that doesn't isn't pouring aviation fuel on the runway when it's taxiing is a stunning transformation. And for small passenger planes, all of a sudden they get a lot quieter too, right? They don't need to get whisper quiet, but they're vastly quieter. And there's a whole bunch of safety aspects and a bunch of value propositions there. That's the space I'm urging investors to get into if they want to actually make a difference in this decade, and if they actually want to be part of a growth for next decade. Urban air mobility is just it's out there. I mean, when we have digital air traffic control, high energy density batteries and full autonomous controls that are all certifiable and certified, then we can bring some of that back. But I'd say it will be a fixed rotor craft, not a tilt rotor craft simply because the mechanical simplicity is going to trump. All right. So that's, that's my crystal ball. I just think the entire tilt rotor idea is an attempt to square and to square the engineering compromises between energy density that is far too soon. It's just trying to solve the wrong problem too quickly. So people who want to invest regional air mobility, go to the white paper, look through the list of people. You know, those are good targets for investment for value proposition this decade and early next decade to get some returns on your investment. So we're kind of at the end, but I I always like to close these things with an open-ended question. You're a long-term innovator in aerospace. You're focused on decarbonization. You're focused on you know these spaces. You know, as an innovator, as a leader in the space, you know, what thoughts would you leave with clean technica's audience, which is about fifty percent US and about fifty percent the rest of the world? What would you like to say to them?
0: Yeah, I think I would I would essentially attempt to to summarize why why regional mobility is is such a such an exciting opportunity, and you know, essentially, we've got, especially here at X Wing, and I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll jump on to. Hey, we we are a startup. I, I uh, we we ta- we are taking uh, any uh, additional funding as well, and are are definitely focused on the the regional mobility market. And I think it really, it starts with cargo first, as as you were mentioning. We we want to fly. Uh, I mean, we're currently flying and operating daily cargo flights with our Part 135 subsidiary. And we have an autonomous Cessna, Cessna 208, which is you know the, the largest or most, most common cargo feeder aircraft. And so it's, you know, we we're we'll hopefully get approved for that supplemental type certificate this year that will allow for commercial operations. And I think that's, you know, that's where we start to build and start to transition that to our entire fleet, and begin to build those hours of operational expertise that clearly demonstrates the safety, which you mentioned, over these less populated areas first, before we begin flights over over populated areas. And I think this is this is the key opportunity that X Wing sees is you know the ability to build that confidence in the safety our system with boxes instead of instead of passengers, sub- which substantially reduces the overall risk but i think more you know more broadly from a regional mobility standpoint like the the local airport that you may not have even known existed you know will soon be a catalyst for change in how you are able to travel uh, you'll no longer have to have those 6 8 10 hour drives you'll no longer have to sit for 2 hours in an airport or lose your bags or get stuck in tsa or you know any of these terrible experiences that that just hamper our, our ability to travel regionally. And I think that's what really excites me is, you know, we're, we're creating these hubs for local renewable energy. You're going to have rapid access to convenience commerce options and critical supplies through these these cargo carriers and this quick access through these these new aviation products. And I think, you know, targeted investments and policy decisions will accelerate the adoption of Ram's vision. You know, these include the maturation of the technologies that we've mentioned thus far today electrified aviation, autonomous, automated aircraft operations, you know, policy initiatives that enhance regional airports and expand their operational and energy generational capabilities or energy generation capabilities, you know, while ensuring that RAM operators are good neighbors. Like you mentioned, super quiet, no emissions. And then, you know, let's, let's work on development of approaches to ensure that RAM users and customers have nationwide access and global wide access to safe, affordable, and convenient transportation and delivery services. And so I, I think it's just really up to us to start to demand that and start to push it forward and, and enable this, this new opportunity to help realize the vision of, of what really could be. A new opportunity to decentralize aviation. I, you know, I mentioned early on the 06 percent. Right, we're getting crammed into these these planes with 155 of our our closest friends, or not really. But you know, it's it's really we're, aviation, the joy of flight. Let's bring that back to aviation by actually allowing you the opportunity to travel from where you want to be to where you want to go as easily as possible with it with not uh, all of the rigmarole that we have to deal with today.
1: Yeah, I'll make it a little more concrete. You know, imagine you're a family of four and you're in Denver and you're going to the ski hills in Vail and you take an electric, you drive your Tesla or take an electric Uber to a low, small regional field where you've booked a four-seater passenger plane with some cargo and you get in it and 15 minutes after you get, at the, get to the airport, you're in the air, and an hour later, you're in Vail, you're, you're landing, and you and your family are being, you know, shuttled by the electric Uber or whatever's in Vail to the hotel that you're going to stay at, and you're on the slopes, right? And it's fast, it's less expensive than getting there anywhere anywhere else, it's a lot safer than driving those roads, and you don't have to go past the evil demon horse at Denver International Airport with its weird glowing eyes. I, I personally think that not traumatizing your children with the demon horse is worth the price of admission by itself. Uh, Kevin, uh, I've been speaking to Kevin Antcliffe, who's um, you know kind of the product lead at X-Wing, an autonomous aviation startup, formerly of NASA, you know, second generation NASA guy, which is I think the first person I've spoken to who's second generation NASA, so that's cool as well. And, and we've been talking about regional air mobility. Within five years, that vision of taking an Uber electric Uber to a local airport and getting in a small electric airplane for trips up to 250 miles with your family or your business co- coworkers, that's a reality that's coming fast. And so look for this opportunity and expect to be offered this opportunity from various people over, over the coming years. It's gonna be a really interesting second half of the decade. Kevin, thank you so
0: much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's acc. O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com Thanks!